All right, can you guys hear me? Awesome. Glad to be here with you guys. Like you said, my name is Derek Logsdon. Um, I'm here preaching in Pastor Tim's absence as he is out at Crossings as the camp pastor there this week. Um, I would encourage you to pray for him as he um, has some time away from the pulpit, uh, but preaching all week. So, I mean, I know you guys know this, but you guys have a very faithful pastor and Pastor Tim. Um, long tenure here at Woodburn, very faithful, and not just him, but Warren and Jason and Rod and all the rest. So um, I just wanted you guys to know how much I appreciate them and how much I look up, um, especially to Pastor Tim, who I know probably the most, but just in his long tenure and his faithfulness here. Um, So we'll be in Colossians chapter 4. I should have told you that earlier. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. It was not at all planned. I just found out this morning that you guys were starting a new sermon series through prayer. So we'll just call this um, divine orchestration today that um, I'm preaching from Colossians 4. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and read Colossians 4. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to try and preach a bit. Um, I tend to go longer than I ought, so I figured we might as well just get started. Um, So Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, God's Word says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this day to sit under your word. We ask for your help, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Pray that you would be with me as I try and share from your word um, what we find in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've never read the book of Colossians before, by way of context, this letter is written by a man named Paul who was an apostle to a small church in the city of Colossae. And he was actually written while the apostle Paul was residing in prison. So Paul writes this letter to address a dangerous teaching that has infiltrated the Colossian church that seeks to lessen Christ's role in the lives of the believers. And rightly so, the Apostle Paul deems it necessary to write a letter to combat this false teaching and encourage the Colossian believers to move towards growth and maturity through taking Christ and allowing him to reign supremely over all things in their lives. And it's here in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, where the Apostle Paul um, encourages the believers to allow Christ to reign supreme even in their speech. It is often forgotten, I think, that speech is actually the way that we display and that we mirror the image of God. The first conversation in the Bible is actually recorded in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where um, we find God saying, let us make mankind in our own image, in our own likeness, and let them rule. We see kind of this inner Trinitarian conversation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, talking about how males and females will be created in God's image and partially the way that we display the character of God and mirror his image is through our speech. 
whether that is just a young couple, newly married, walking down the beach, holding hands for the first time, talking about their day or their love for one another, or maybe it's two children and they're playing in the sandbox and discussing how tall and the intricacies of their sandcastle that they're going to make. All of these things display God's image. Now, some of us uh, display God's image more than others, meaning we like to talk more than other people. And I think our society also loves to speak, doesn't it? Never before in history has the noise of human communication been just so constant, so widespread. Nearly everyone now has some sort of virtual platform from which we can speak about any cultural or political or um, circumstantial issue that arises in our world today. Whether that's 140 characters on a small Twitter tweet or whether that's longer thoughts extended on Facebook post, I'm afraid that our desire to be heard is at an all-time high, isn't it? But my biggest fear, I think, is that our speech often has misplaced priorities. What is it that makes us love to speak, but not about Jesus? Makes us love to speak to friends, but rarely speak to God. Speak about ourselves, but rarely about Christ. You see, it's in our text today, these four verses, where the Apostle Paul gives us a lesson on heavenly conversation. And heavenly conversation is to follow a certain priority list. It is to be said in a certain way, and this will serve as kind of my main overarching point, and it is this, the Apostle Paul tells us that heavenly conversations speak to God about man before they speak to man about God. Conversations that are heavenly speak to God about man before they speak to man about God. I don't want to overcomplicate this text with kind of a detailed outline, so that'll serve as my two main points. First, speaking to God about man in verses 2 through 4, but then in verses 5 through 6, speaking to man about God. So first, we'll start with speaking to God about man or about people. The Apostle Paul gives us, in verse 2, an exhortation that we are to pray as Christians. At its base, prayer is simply speaking or talking to God. And from that foundation, Paul gives us some instructions about our prayers. It is to consist of some certain characteristics, but also to consist of some certain content that's very important. In light of the characteristics, notice first that Paul asked them to continue steadfastly in prayer. That means we don't dabble in prayer, we don't engage in prayer half-heartedly. Rather, we are to be fully devoted to it, as the ESV puts it. Now, this command, it doesn't come in some sort of vacuum. In fact, actually, to pray steadfastly is encouraged all throughout the Bible. You might remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where the early church is described as being continually united in prayer. Or maybe 1 Thessalonians, you probably know this one, that you are to pray without ceasing. But possibly most famous, though, to a lot of people, but maybe not famous to you, is in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells the story of a persistent widow. And there's this unrighteous judge who could honestly care less about this widow. She's had some wrong done to her in her life, and so she goes to the judge and asks him to take up her cause, to which the judge continues to ignore her. But, the ju- but basically, the widow is persistent. She does not give up. 
Instead, it says, the text says that she pesters or continues to go to the judge and batters him, and so it basically wears him down, and he eventually gives over justice to the widow, to which Jesus says, how much more so will not your heavenly Father give justice to you? Luke 18, the whole story of the persistent widow is set up with this. Jesus told them that this parable, so that the disciples would pray always and never lose heart. It's a good example of being steadfast, persisting in prayer, not losing heart. Do you lose heart when you pray? Or do you persist? Maybe you've been asking the Lord to bring someone to Christ for a long time. Maybe it's a friend or a family member. Maybe you have a wayward child who's gone off and you've just been praying over and over to bring them back to you and bring them back to God and they seem to see no fruit. Continue praying. Persist in praying. There's a quote by an old Puritan that says, sometimes, this is, this is the wonder of prayer, sometimes we lie beneath the sod before the, spring, before the seed springs forth. The beauty of prayer is that we can pray for a whole lifetime and then pass away, and then God can answer our prayer when we're long gone because we were steadfast in it. Prayer, we are to be steadfast. But notice the second characteristic of prayer Paul mentions is that it's not just to be steadfast continually, but we are to also be vigilant. He calls us to stay alert. This means having a prayer life that is alert and awake is not one that's kind of like a monk and you're over in this sort of ethereal state, disconnected from the entire world. Rather, you are to be watchful with watchful eyes and considering the circumstances that seem to surround you. Think about the Colossian church and their cultural circumstances and spiritual circumstances that Paul is writing to address. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, through human tradition. And then later in verse 18, he warns them of an ascetic life, and basically that's just a rough, ragged life filled with obedience and legalism. He says none of these things are going to get you to Christ. Only allowing Christ to reign supreme is what grows you as a believer. You see, for Paul, our prayer is to be watchful, in tune with the times, considering the circumstances and the things that dwell within us, specifically two things. One, the false teachers that reign among us, but also, two, the sin that dwells inside of us. This is what the Apostle Paul addresses. It's why I think, though, keeping watch, being vigilant, staying alert is a key mark of being a disciple. You see, wasn't it Jesus himself that said, pray that you might not enter into temptation or fall into temptation? Jesus asks us and instructs us to pray preventatively. Sadly, I think my prayer is often filled with more confession rather than prevention, praying that I might not fall into sin. But if we are to follow the instruction of Jesus and follow the instruction of Paul, we are to pray preventatively, being watchful, being aware of the sin that lurks inside of us. Are you watchful? Do you know the temptation that tends to drag your heart away and tends to drag you, not towards God, but 
towards sin. But our prayer is not just to be steadfast and watchful. There is one more characteristic. It is to be thankful. Thankful. The book of Colossians begins and ends with thankfulness. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Prayer is all throughout the book of Colossians, which is why I think that prayer comes from the garden of a thankful heart. It is to be well watered with thankfulness, and then we pray to God. Think about your own salvation just for a second, and I'll think on mine and try not to be thankful. Thinking about who you once were and thinking about the life you once lived, and God chose to set his sight on you and chose to redeem you and loved you despite your sin, that should well up thankfulness in your heart and cause you to praise him and reign and give glory back to him. That's why I believe that prayer is not first and foremost speaking to God. Rather, it is God speaks to us and then we speak back to God. He has given us salvation or he speaks to us through his word and then after that, then we give him praise and declare glory and honor to him. It's not dial-up internet. It's 24-7 access. He's given us salvation, so we praise him. There's an old hymn that I think illustrates it well. I don't know if you remember it, but it says, um, are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy that you are called to bear? Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly, and you will keep singing as the day's go by. Count our blessings, the fact that you've been saved, the fact that you have been given so much that you don't deserve, and I guarantee your lives will be filled with prayer. These are the characteristics to be steadfast, to be vigilant, to be thankful, but speaking to God about man um, is not simply to be characterized by certain attributes. It is also to be filled with a certain content. Look Has anyone ever asked you, um, hey, how can I pray for you? And you think in your head, you don't want to say too much, but you don't want to say too little. You don't want to be too spiritual, but you don't want to be not spiritual enough. So you're trying to figure out what it is in your life you need prayer for. Whatever you answer actually reveals something about you. It reveals what you think is most important to you, your greatest need, your greatest desire, however you answer that question. What does Paul... In the content of his prayer, what does he think is most important to him? Look at verse 3. Pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. The first piece of content that Paul prays is for the door to be opened for the gospel to advance. And notice, notice this. Where did I say that Paul was writing this letter from. Prison. And yet he does not pray for the prison door to be open. He prays for the gospel door to be open. Not simply caring about his own freedom from his jail cell, but yet caring for others to be free from sin. It's clear that he doesn't seem to care whether he's in prison or not. He just wants more opportunities to preach the gospel. So I'll ask you, Just a question to press in a little bit. Let's say that police officers came to your house tomorrow because you were in church today. What would your letter 
your first letter to your friends and your family sound like? As you get out the pen and the parchment and you sit on that cold bench, you look around the other inmates, what would it, what would it sound like? Whatever you write and whatever I would write would reveal a lot about my trust in Jesus, wouldn't it? I think, knowing myself, I would be tempted to uh, despair, to blame God for my circumstances, the fact that I'm in prison, that he could have prevented it, but yet he did not. I'll be quick into believing that God's hand has been removed from my life, that his plan is not working, but I would gently encourage myself and you all if that situation did arise, and maybe you're in suffering circumstances now, that God's plan is never not working. It really isn't. But his plan might include, might include for you to suffer so that the gospel could go forth. It might include that. Not saying it always does, but it might include the fact that you are to suffer so that the gospel could go forth to places it has never been. You might not realize it, but the fact that Paul was in prison actually gave him a platform for the gospel to go forth to greater places. He had access to prisoners and guards and Caesar himself. All of these things he prayed for because he knew that this had an opportunity for the gospel to go everywhere. I think about myself when I um, was living in the Middle East. Uh, I was teaching English, but um, I was actually serving um, and working with an underground church um, at the time. And I, we had a small group. It was about like 15 people and some kids. And we met in a local's apartment at the time. It was illegal to, to be a Christian. It was illegal to um, meet together as a church. Um, there were no churches in the country whatsoever, or established churches, recognized churches. Um, and I remember I showed up for church one Sunday. We met Sunday nights uh, just because of the danger. But, um, and I went to the apartment, and there was no one there, and I was confused. And a team leader said, well, actually, the police told us we can't meet anymore. Um, they found out that we were meeting, no more meeting. And so I said, well, what are we going to do? And I was like, I guess I'll go home. And he was like, and he said, what do you mean? He was like, we're just going to keep talking about the gospel with people and pray that we have more opportunities to talk about it. And it was in that moment that I was blown away simply not because of this guy's great faith, but because of my seeming lack of faith. Because I realized in that moment, and sometimes I still struggle with it, that it's more important, I think, for me to be safe than for others to be saved. Whether that's my own reputation and how I share the gospel, whether that's grandparents here where you're, or parents and you're, you know they want to go over to the mission field and you're not sure and all these different things. And there's so much of this. But here, the Apostle Paul prays for gospel advance for the very thing that got him in prison in the first place. I think that's important for us to learn. Now, it's important to note for who opens the door for the gospel advance, he prays for it. Notice that it's God alone that he, prays for, that he prays for. It's not praying for his own strength to open the door, but rather he prays that God would open the door. Acts 14, it reminds me of Lydia. I don't know if you've heard the story, but um, the text says God opens her heart to respond to what Paul was saying, opens her 
heart. And that's the, the key problem when people don't believe the gospel. Um, it's not necessarily what you say or any of those things. It's the fact that of the hardness of their own heart. The way that salvation works is that God comes in and he, he basically takes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. You are dead in your sins. You're dead in your transgressions. And what God does is he takes you to the back room and he gives you a heart transplant. He gives you open heart surgery and replaces it. He's involved in the entire process from start to finish. And the same is true with how we share the gospel with people. It might surprise you, but I don't know if you know, but everything about your life is not an accident. There's not one thing about your life that is somehow an accident. God has assigned you a life to live. Who you are, where you are, when you are, why you are, and how you are. God has established that and ordained that. And so what Paul does, the way that he um, speaks to God about man and speaks to man about God, is he does this. His evangelistic strategy is simply to embrace the circumstances around him and pray that God gives him an opportunity to share the gospel with people. So think about your own life. What is your assignment right now? Maybe you're a college student, or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, or maybe you uh, work in the, the business world. Whatever it may be, wouldn't you love to see God open up doors for the sake of the gospel where you are right now? And if Paul can pray for God to open doors in prison, surely we can pray for God to open doors in our own lives. Isn't that right? So we pray that God would open doors. Secondly, though, Paul doesn't just pray for open doors. He prays that when he speaks the mystery of the gospel, which we'll talk about in a second, that it would be clear, that there would be clarity in his speech. I think one of the biggest fears that we have when we speak the gospel to people is we're just not going to know what to say. We're going to trip over it, all those things. But notice that he doesn't pray for eloquence, but clearness, clarity in the gospel. How can we ensure that we're clear when we share the gospel with other people. I think first, to be able to share the gospel or speak the gospel to people clearly as we ought, like the text says, we should understand the gospel as we ought. So God has given us this word to read and to understand. It's vitally important to understand the breadth of Scripture, God's redemption plan for the world, the fact that there is one God, He is holy yet just, and there is um, us, humanity, we are sinful, dead in our sins and transgressions. We have been in rebellion towards God um, because of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, and what, how God's rescue plan for the world, His mission plan for the world was simply to send his son, Jesus Christ, both fully God yet fully man, into the world, live a perfect life, die a death that we deserve, bearing the wrath of God and um, the sins of the world on his shoulders, and then raising again after three days, showing God's acceptance of this sacrifice. If, and now, if we'll repent and believe, if we'll turn and trust, then we too can be saved. You don't have to say it like that, but those are all necessary elements of the gospel for us to understand and for us to speak to other people. This is a clear gospel. And I think, too, you should pray um, for your church leaders. 
to speak the gospel clearly. If Tim comes up here every Sunday, Tim is at crossings right now speaking the gospel. You should pray for him after the service and pray that he would speak it clearly to teenagers and to kids. Pray every Sunday that um, Jason would speak the gospel clearly to the teenagers and the young adults. Whoever it may be, we should pray that we speak the gospel clearly. Now, before I move on, I do want to make just to draw out two applications from both the sender of the letter and the receiver of the letter. So first, the, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, openly asks for prayer for himself from the Colossian church. The greatest church planner in the world, possibly the most famous person in the Bible other than Jesus, asks help for prayer. Now, I'm sure he was fully capable of praying for himself for these needs, which I'm sure he did. But there's something about asking people for prayer. And so I'll just give you just two encouragements. One is that it's okay for you to admit that you need help in prayer. You have permission from God to be weak. In fact, it's actually encouraged. Christ's power is made perfect in our own weakness. The economy of the gospel is the fact that how this world works and the way that God's world works is actually upside down. Those that are weak are actually strong. Those who are last are actually first. That's the way it works. And so I want to encourage you to be honest with people when you need prayer. And I think this too, if Apostle Paul needs prayer, your church leaders need prayer too, just as much. But two, there is this There's this reality that prayer allows you to join in on God's mission. Paul, I'm sure, prayed for himself, but he anticipated and seemed to know that there would be greater fruitfulness when other people joined in with him in praying. I can't tell you the the number of times that when I was, you know, overseas or wherever doing stuff, and I would ask people for prayer, and God would answer it, you know, just a minute after they prayed or a day after they prayed or something like that. We have the ability to join in on what God is doing in other countries and in other places simply by praying for them and their specific needs. This has major implications for the 2020 vision that you guys are talking about, um, that you guys just did, and now this um, new, uh, this new uh, initiative, Mission One, that you have church planners and missionaries and other people that need prayer, and how you pray actually affects what goes on there because of the God that you're praying to. And so I would encourage you as a church to pray, but that's Paul, he asks for prayer, and he wants them to pray for him. But second, notice um, that he asks the entire church to pray for him. Not just, it's tempting, I think, to read the Bible as um, individuals, and so we're reading the Bible as, this is about my individual prayer life, but rather, this is, the whole letter is written to one entire church. So we have to think of these things in terms of corporate prayer. So, I don't know if you guys know, but I was here you know, a month or two ago, or I don't remember when it was, and you guys actually have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. Tim, I was here, and Pastor Tim was just, he, people would raise their hand and ask for prayer. They'd remind them, you know, this person's in the hospital, or this person needs, you know, prayer, whatever it is. It, it, was, it was amazing. It wasn't, I mean, it, it wasn't attractive by any means. It wasn't spectacular. It wasn't like an amusement park, um, but I don't think prayer's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be not attractive or, you know, elaborate. It's supposed to be vital and necessary. It's, it's like oxygen to the Christian. We exhale. We don't think about breathing. It's just something we do, and this is what our prayers are supposed to be. We need, it's like it helps us 
It's like we're on life support. So maybe there's something you need to think about just this Wednesday night gathering. How can you come and pray together as a group? That's why I like the, the motto of Operation World. It says, when man works, man works. But when man prays, God works. And isn't that true? It's why we must speak to God about man before we speak to man about God. But we still must speak to man about God, right? That's the second point, speaking to man about God. We can pray all day and we can pray every second for decades, years, but someone cannot be saved until we open our mouths and speak to them about Jesus. There's a quote that you might have heard by St. Francis of Sissy. Um, it's actually attributed to him. He didn't actually say it, but um, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. And what he's saying, I think, is true in some ways because he's basically saying the way you talk you know, needs to align with the way you walk. But in some ways, I want to caveat it and say you cannot actually become a Christian unless someone speaks verbally the gospel to you. You have to speak of it. It's why the book of Romans says, how can they believe without hearing him? Or how can they hear without a preacher? You can't believe without hearing the gospel. It's why the Apostle Paul says to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And notice the balance here before we, before we talk about this. Notice the balance that you have God. He opens the doors for Paul, but Paul here is talking about speaking. Paul is not, does not have any excuse to remain inactive in the process. He's not just saying, God, open the door for me, and then you're going to do it all. He's, he's active in it and speaking the gospel. I think sometimes we can distort how God opens doors, maybe, and we might say things like, um, you know, I didn't share the gospel with them. I didn't tell them about Jesus. It just, it didn't feel right. It just it didn't seem like the right time. Or maybe you have an issue with someone that you need to resolve, and you might say something like, um, I, I want to talk to them, but ah, we're, just, we're just not seeming to run into each other, when really you're probably avoiding them in the first place. <laughs> Or maybe you say you have some sin to confess, you're in this small group, you want to tell someone, and you're just like, it just it doesn't seem like the right time. And friends, I, I think um, we sometimes wait around unmistakably for God just to rip open this door and to shove us through the door, but God opens doors, but we must, as humans, we are responsible to have the courage to walk through the doors. God opens the doors, but sometimes he opens the doors simply by you inviting your friend to coffee so that you can share the gospel with them. Or simply by you going on that mission trip or you doing these things, right? The God um, opens the doors, but you are also involved in the process. So that's why we speak. And what is it that we speak? What is the, the content of how we are to speak the mystery of Christ? It is that. It is a mystery. And often when I hear the words mystery, I think of Nancy Drew or Sherlock Holmes or something like that. But that's not how it is to be thought of. Rather, you should think of the unfolding plan of God in redemptive history. Essentially, the mystery is equivalent to the gospel found in the Lord Jesus 
Christ. It is the fact that there is salvation, it is good news, and it declares that both men and women, Jew and Gentile, can be saved and forgiven from their sin and grafted in to the kingdom of God. It's why Colossians 1 says, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. And then in verse 27, it says, God wanted to make known among you the Gentiles the glorious wealth of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, that is the mystery. Christ himself working in you. And so if you are here today, you're not a Christian or you're not a believer, this is what we hope by the end of the service you would come to understand. This mystery, the gospel, the fact that Christ looked down upon you and has, and you can repent and believe and be saved from your sin. This is the mystery. But we are to speak the mystery in a certain way. This is why it says in verse 5, we speak the mystery. We speak to man about God with wisdom. Verse 5, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. It's this missional-oriented instruction. Paul tells us we are to seek wisdom in how we relate and talk with those who do not believe in Christ. We are to make most of the time. It's literally rendered in the original language, buy back the time. And time, like money, is precious, isn't it? It really is. And those who invest in money, those who invest in finances, they know when to buy and they know when to sell, don't they? They know a unique opportunity is a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance. They recognize those things. They strike while the iron is hot. And this is why, as believers, I think we are to be like godly investors in time. Always searching, always praying, looking for open doors, no matter how small, thinking how we can invest our time for the sake of the gospel. Not sleepwalking through relationships that you maybe have with coworkers or classmates, but rather looking at them strategically and intentionally about how you may spend time with them, how you may buy back the time in order to share the gospel with them. But we are not just to be walking in wisdom towards outsiders. We are also to be gracious. It says, let your speech always be gracious. Notice that word, uh, always. It's like a neon light. Always be gracious. I think this means that there is never really a time where a Christian ought not to be gracious in our speech. I think that's one of the consequences of social media these days. We have the tendency as Christians um, and anyone really on social media to saw ourselves in half because our walk does not match our talk or our talk does not match our walk. It's tragic. We are to be gracious in how we speak. It's to be like Jesus. Do you know how Jesus spoke? Luke 4.22 says that the people marveled at the gracious words that were coming from Jesus' mouth. Marveled at the gracious words. He spoke with real grace. How different our relationships might be if we spoke with grace, if we spoke graciously like Christ. But our speech is not just to be gracious, it is also to have an effect. It is to be salty. That's why it says seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. You see, grace is the root of our speech. It's kind of the garden of it, but um, saltiness is the effect or the fruit of our speech. 
And I think this means, you can take it quite a few different ways, but I think this means um, that what we say about Jesus should be appetizing in a sense. Appetizing. You see, when food is um, not salted, it is unappetizing. It's not worth even eating. People don't want to eat it. Our speech, though, should not be this way. It should be flavorful. When we speak of Jesus, the mouths of people who don't know Jesus should water because they want him so badly because of what we have, the hope that is in Christ. And I think um, the tendency in all this is to lean towards, um, you know, well, I'm not doing this, and just beat yourself up, and all, all these different things. And I would encourage you with this, that um, the motivation is not simply to do it more. It's not simply to share more and pray more and all these things. Um, it is to take, enjoy Christ himself, and that will be your motivation. You see, sometimes when we've tasted something for so long, even with salt, you've tasted it forever, it can become bland. It can become dull. You become dull to the senses and to the tastes. And so what this is saying, I think, the best motivation we have, the greatest um, foundation for sharing and praying and all of these things is simply to enjoy Christ. And out of an overflow, we will then share Christ and pray to Christ. It's hard to salt the your speech with the beauty of Jesus when you've grown dull to seeing the beauty of Jesus. And so we must look to him. But all of this walking in wisdom and um, having salty speech and gracious speech is all done for one purpose, and it is this. So as to know how you must answer each person. Let me just remind everyone that um, people are not projects. They're really not. They're people to be cared for and, and loved. And they're each different. And they're intricate and complex. And I don't know if you've ever been on the other end of an evangelistic project, but I have a couple times, and they usually knock on my door, and they try and talk to me for a long time. It, do, it doesn't feel good. It feel, I feel used. I feel um, like unloved and not real, that I'm just trying to sell me something. The gospel is not something to be sold. It is something to be declared and cherished and loved. Um, Francis Schaeffer once uh, asked how he would spend an hour with someone who did not know Christ, and he said this, I would listen to them for 55 minutes, and then in the last, in the last five minutes, I would have something to say to them about Jesus. He would listen to their hurts and their feelings and um, their intricacies, and then he would know exactly how best to speak to them. We're not speaking the gospel in canned explanations, just saying basic facts. We're speaking and comforting people with Jesus. He, Francis Schaeffer, spoke to man about God in a way that was heavenly. It is heavenly conversations. It's speaking to God about man before we speak to man about God. And I'll close with this story about a man who I think spoke to God about man before speaking to man about God better than anyone that I know. His name is David Livingstone. He was a missionary ordained and sent to Africa to open up the interior to extend gospel reach all across the world. And he was found on May 1st, 1873 by natives dead. He was on his knees and his head was in his hands, and he was over his bed. 
You see, he had died while praying. He had died while praying in a village that was so remote that it took over 11 months to get his body out of there and into Westminster Abbey where it's buried today. And this is what his tombstone says. <clears throat> I have other sheep not of this fold. Them also I must bring. I have other sheep not of this fold. Them also I must bring. Modeling what Jesus said to his disciples. You see, he was praying, yet sharing. He understood that we must speak to God about man before we speak to man about God. My prayer is that would be true for Webman Baptist Church as well. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this day, for the opportunity to sit under your word, to see what it means for Christ to, be, to reign supreme in our lives, for him to remain supreme, and reign supreme in our speech, how we speak to God and how we speak to others. Lord, we image God, we mirror God in how we speak. May we be true to our speech and gracious with our speech. Lord, I pray for people here, maybe they need to come down the altar, we'll be open and pray to you for the first time in a long time. Maybe they need to come and pray about someone before they speak to someone about you, Lord, would you allow that and empower them? Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus who spoke so graciously to us. He spoke to us through his word and, and how you speak to us through your son and through your spirit. We thank you for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.